We're going to read the Word of God tonight from Mark 15. It's pointed out to me before the service that Prof. Kuyper and I selected the same Scripture reading, not quite the same text, but close to it today. I had assumed that he was going through the catechism with you and that it would be safe for me to preach a sermon on the suffering of Christ. We are in the season of Lent, and we consider the passion, and that refers to the suffering of Jesus Christ, and Good Friday is coming. So I'm still going to turn to the text after the Scripture reading in Isaiah 53, but let's read from Mark 15 and pick up our reading at verse 23. No, 25. 25. And we will read through the um, confession of the centurion in verse 39. So Mark 15, verse 25. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. As far as we read the Word of God this evening, may God bless the reading of His Word. We're turning to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 tonight for the text. And having read Isaiah 52, verses 13 through the whole of Isaiah 53, you know that 700 years before Jesus' crucifixion, 
God gave Isaiah the ability as a prophet to see and describe his crucifixion, almost giving a history of it like we just read in Mark 15. Now, what we read in Mark 15 is the fact of Jesus' crucifixion. What we have in the text tonight is the explanation. Why was Jesus crucified? Why did he have to die on the cross? So verses 4 through 6, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are joyfully sober as we consider the text in verses 4 through 6 here of Isaiah 53. We have joy because, and now we didn't read that tonight, but you did this morning, this description of Jesus' suffering in Isaiah 53 comes between two declarations of victory, of triumph. You may remember that in verse 13 of chapter 52, God introduces His servant through Isaiah saying, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. God wants it to be clear before this description of deep deep suffering, that this suffering is not in any way an indication of defeat or failure. What is going to be declared even in the suffering is the way of victory for God's servant. And then at the end, in verses 10 through 12, I'm not going to read that now, there are at least eight or nine triumphant statements with regard to the work of the servant, that is Jesus Christ. Through his suffering, there is victory. And so tonight, and also Friday, when, Lord willing, we gather together to remember the death of our Lord, we have joy in the triumph of the cross. At the same time, we are sober-hearted and serious-minded as Isaiah does go on after that note of victory. My servant is going to be exalted. He is going to be extolled. He's going to be placed on high. He goes on to say after that, there is much suffering that my servant is going to go through. Chapter 52, many were astonished, astonished, at his visage, his appearance, he was marred, disfigured. So much that the kings shall shut their mouths at him. They don't understand such suffering. Then you get into chapter 53, and Prof. Kuiper covered this, I believe, especially in verse 2. 
there's no form nor comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Despised and rejected of men. But so much a man of sorrows and so acquainted with grief that He appears to us to be cursed not only by men, but smitten by God, cursed by God Himself. So that the suffering of Jesus Christ is obvious. Anyone who knows the history of Jesus' ministry, his life, and his death knows that he was a man who endured great suffering. What's not so obvious, though, is the reason. Why such suffering for the servant of God? The kings of the earth don't have an explanation for this. They shut their mouths. If this man is the great servant of God and he is to be extolled and lifted up on high, from an earthly king's point of view, there should be no suffering. Kings don't suffer. They go from triumph to triumph. Who hath believed our report is a rhetorical question. From an earthly point of view, no one would believe this, that the servant of God who is triumphant and who is to be extolled and elevated, that he would suffer so. And now this is the place, specifically in all of this description of Jesus' suffering in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 is the place where God gives an explanation of the reason for the suffering of His servant, Jesus Christ. And you know why. He had to suffer and die on the cross for sin. So God states very clearly in the text that is before us tonight, He's wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, so that even our children hopefully have an answer, an answer that they've received from God. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die on the cross? It was for sin. It's not hard to give that answer or to understand that answer, but it is an answer that many people do not like an explanation for the suffering of Jesus. Because if you understand this, you understand that this requires a confession of your own sin and your own need for a Savior. And there are many people who don't want to confess sin or admit that they need a Savior. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, then tonight you embrace this truth. I know why. Jesus had to suffer and die. In the plural, it was for our sins. And that includes my sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. Let's consider that tonight as the theme for the sermon. Wounded for our transgressions, two points, the meaning and the result. The text teaches us the reason for the suffering of the servant of God, and that reason is this. He has come to take our place. Verse 3 which is not part of the text. But verse 3, which comes right before our text, says that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
There's the explanation of the fact that he is a man of sorrow and grief. Now, verse 4 is telling us why. Surely, there's the emphasis. Certainly, surely, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Text is explaining that he is our substitute. In his suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah, came to take our place, to be our substitute. And the idea here is not only that he is going to be subjected to physical sorrow and grief, but he is the man who knows soul agony. That's the idea that is introduced in verse 3. He not only knows the agony of soul that comes with the rejection of men, but he is stricken by God. And the prophet's going to go on in verses 10 and 11 and speak of the fact that God has put him to grief and made his soul an offering for sin. This is much deeper than mere physical suffering. This is spiritual suffering in our place. Jesus, the servant of God, would know the grief and the sorrow of the curse of God upon him all his life long. And now, especially as Isaiah describes that here in Isaiah 53, at the end of his life, on the, da- on the cross when he was sacrificed for sin. Verse 3 makes it clear that he would go through heavy, heavy grief. And now verse 4 makes it clear why this pain and grief is upon him. Because he is taking our place. That has to be understood because we know why God places his curse upon man. Isaiah is a book that reveals the holiness of God. You might recall at one point, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. That's what the angels in heaven are revealed by Isaiah to say in the presence of God. That holiness of God is the explanation for the wrath of God. God is pure. He is righteous in His own being. He's devoted to Himself. And if you want to give a good definition to the wrath of God, it's this. It's the reaction of His holiness towards sin, towards anything that is against God. But this servant of God is holy. There is no sin in Him. Hebrews 7 verse 26 says of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of this prophecy, He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And according to 1 John 2 verse 1, He is Jesus Christ the righteous. And if you, in studying the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, turn to John 18, which we also could have read, and read through starting at verse 38 and read through John 19, verse 6, you will see that even that unbelieving governor, Pilate, said three times, I find no fault in this man. How could God then lay His holy wrath 
upon His servant Jesus? The text says, here's the answer. It's really pretty simple. He came to be wounded for our transgressions. Or as verse 4 says, to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows. Therefore, He is smitten, stricken of God. Verse 5 gives further explanation of this and makes it very plain that Jesus has come in our place to bear the punishment for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And the idea here is not that Jesus Christ Himself became a sinner. He bore the punishment for our sins. The teaching of Isaiah here is that we are the sinners. And so this text is a confession of sin by Israel by the members of the church. We are the ones who have transgressions. That is, we have broken the law. The law says, do not do this. Do not go there. We are the ones who have done those things. We have gone there. The law says this is what you are to do. Go there. We are the ones who have broken the law not doing what the law demands. But it's deeper than that. Not only are we guilty of transgressing the law, but Isaiah speaks of iniquity here. He had to suffer for our iniquities. This refers to the inward depravity of our nature. Jesus' suffering for our sin had to be not only for the outward deeds that we have committed, transgressing the law of God, but He had to cleanse us from the indwelling power of sin, from the sin that pollutes our natures. So that we ought to be in awe of this wonder work of salvation from sin. You can think of it something like this. And this isn't to minimize what it is to have an outward stain on a piece of carpet. That can be very difficult to remove as well. But think about that piece of carpet where the stain goes down into the very fibers of that carpet might be able to take that dirt off the surface, but find that it's impossible to get to the very root, to the very heart of that stain. And that's what Isaiah is teaching us here, to confess that our sins are not only these outward transgressions of the law, but sin is rooted in the very heart of our being. We are stained with sin. And now, our sins are laid upon Him. And this is where the theological term of imputation comes in. We, we think of imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. And that's a beautiful thing. I believe Isaiah is speaking of that in verse 11 when he speaks of His righteous servant justifying many. 
He has a righteousness that he imputes to us so that the righteousness with which we stand before God is not our own, it's Christ. But now here in the text before us, there's another kind of imputation, and that's this. Our sins, our unrighteousnesses, are imputed to Christ so that he's not guilty of any unrighteousness, but legally he has become responsible for our unrighteousness so that He bears the punishment we deserve. He was wounded, punished for our transgressions. Not guilty of our transgressions, but so responsible for them that God says, you bear the punishment for them. The idea there perhaps is pierced. And then we think of the hands and the feet of Jesus pierced with Roman nails as He was nailed to the cross. And then this too, although He was already dead, but pierced with the spear thrust in His side. And the idea here is that His sacrifice was a sacrifice of death, even the death of the cross. Not just wounded, but wounded or pierced to death. He gave his life as a punishment for our sin. And he was bruised or crushed. Same word that you find in verse 10. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And then when you read on there in verse 10, He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. I believe that that takes us beyond merely the physical suffering of the the nails that were pounded in his hands and his feet so that he would be pierced to physical death. This brings us beyond that to the spiritual death, the agonies of hell, of God's wrath in his soul there on the cross for our transgressions and iniquities. And then verse 6 repeats it and uses the picture of the sheep. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now we think of sheep. We think of the church. We think of God's elect people. And that's true, but Isaiah is using that reference to the sheep from the point of view that naturally we are stubborn. Naturally we are ignorant. Naturally we cannot do anything to protect ourselves, to give ourselves any salvation. Naturally we can't find the way to God. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so the idea is very plain. Those wounds with which he was pierced are the wounds I deserve. The crushing blow with which God even bruised his soul is the crushing blow I deserve. But he came to take my place, to take our place, 
The iniquity of us all was laid on him. That is, our sin was imputed to him, and then God worked out his wrath and anger and his holiness for our sin in Jesus Christ, and not us. We laid it on him in our place. That's sobering. The confession that you have to make tonight is not that Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the world out there or some great sinners out there and not that He had to be nailed to the cross for the sins of my spouse whose sins I know very well or my brother or my sister or someone else in the congregation whose sins I know very well. But He was wounded for my sin. And crushed for my iniquity. And the result we find in the text in verse 5. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This is an astounding thing that Isaiah here speaks of chastisement. There are things that God does in reaction to sin to punish the sinner and to say, my curse is upon you and my intent is to withhold all good, all favor, all love from you and to pour upon you hatred and wrath and contempt. But when Isaiah speaks of chastisement, he's speaking of discipline Discipline that causes pain, but discipline that has a positive outcome. And I think what we have here in Isaiah is an instance of God setting before Jesus what Hebrews 12 verse 2 speaks of as joy. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. We look unto him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, God set before Jesus before he went to the cross. You're going to be successful. And your suffering on the cross is not going to endure forever eventually that suffering is going to come to an end, and then after that's going to be joy. And that's an amazing thing. That's an indication to us of the fact that there's something different about Jesus' suffering than the suffering of anyone else. The fact is that if you and I would be told by God, you're going to suffer the punishment you deserve for your sins. I'm going to wound you. I'm going to crush you for your sins. There could be no Joy set before you. No message of God, this is only going to last for a little while. Then after that, there's going to be something positive that comes out of it. No, we know that when God pours out His wrath upon a mere human being for his or her sin, that that wrath is endured forever. And it's never escaped 
But Isaiah is indicating that this servant of God is unique. He is going to go through deep, deep suffering. But that suffering is going to have a positive benefit for him, and not only for him, but Isaiah 53 makes plain for his people as well. And the explanation for that is that this servant of God is no mere human being. And if I can take you back to verse 13 of chapter 52, when Isaiah uses this language, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. If you study the rest of the book of Isaiah, you'll find that that's language that's only appropriate for God. And that's part of the mystery of what we have here in the book of Isaiah that this servant is clearly a human being. The servant of God, if you go to Isaiah 7, verse 14, is one born of a virgin. He's a human being. And yet, when you turn to chapter 9, you remember that he is given divine titles. The Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. And that's... Here, too, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, this servant of God who's coming is not a mere man. He is very God. And that means that he is going to be able to go through this suffering where he endures not only the hatred and the curses of men, but he endures the heavy wrath of God. But he's going to be able to come out from under that. He will be able to, if you want to put it that way, escape, having fulfilled it, the wrath of God against sin, to escape that wrath and to have life and joy again. And so I believe that our Lord Jesus Christ, on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, this was before his crucifixion, remember. And the glory of heaven was revealed in his clothing and in his face. And then Elijah and Moses were there talking to him about his coming suffering. That was one way that God was setting the joy before him. You're going to suffer. But afterward there will be glory. But another way that God set the joy before him was in a prophecy such as Isaiah 53, verse 5. Can you imagine the young Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know what age he would have started to understand this, but can you imagine him reading Isaiah 53 and saying, this is about me. This is the Father's business that I have come to do. I'm going to suffer. But I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to be lifted high. I'm going to be extolled. And then here in verse 5, and this suffering is going to be for a positive purpose. There's going to be joy after it for me and for my people. And so the passage speaks of peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. And then if you want to dig into that a little bit more, verses 10 through 12 also speak of the joy that's going to come. He shall see his seed. 
I think that means after the offering of himself for sin, Jesus is going to have life and he's going to see his seed. He's going to see the people that he has redeemed. He shall prolong his days. He's going to have everlasting life. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he is going to justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities, verse 11. And therefore will I divide with him a portion of the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's going to have the inheritance of God to divide with his people forever. And so, the result of him being wounded and bruised for our transgressions and iniquities is, first of all, peace. We have to understand what or who is really the cause of our misery. You might say, well, the cause of our misery is sin. But that's not quite accurate. The reality is that because of our sin and because we are guilty before God, God punishes us for our sin. God is the cause of our misery. Or you could put it this way. The fact that we don't by nature have peace with God is the cause of our misery. The fact that through Adam and Eve, we as mere human beings have done the most foolish thing possible. We have declared war on God. And in that warfare with God, there can only be one result. That we are defeated. That He puts us under His wrath, His curse, and makes us miserable. But now... According to the text, Jesus suffered for our sins in our place, has taken away sin so that there is no more cause of God's wrath to be sent towards us. He has instead imputed to us righteousness, verse 11, so that we stand before God in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, worthy of God's peace, His love. His favor again. And not only through Jesus Christ and His suffering in our place do we have peace with God, but we have healing. And the idea here is not only this, that Jesus has taken away the punishment of sin, certainly that's healing in a sense for us. No more hell, no more wrath. Instead, you have the love and the favor of God. But that that healing has to do with the work of Jesus Christ to overcome sin in us. To go to work on that sin that stains your and my nature. To give us a new life. A life where we are not anymore the servants of sin, but where the one who rules over us is Jesus Christ. And we begin to experience healing in this way. That we no longer love sin. We still commit sin, but we don't love it. We seek with the power of Christ in us to turn from sin. We experience the healing power of Christ in us that we begin to love God. We begin to love all of His commandments. We begin to love the neighbor as ourselves. So that part of the lack of peace that we experience by nature is not only that we have no peace with God, but we have no peace with the neighbor. All of our relationships are broken. 
But in Jesus Christ, we begin to experience the healing power of Jesus. Not only in our relationship with God, but in our homes, with spouses, with parents, with children, in our church. And part of the healing work of Jesus Christ is that He takes all that is evil, all that is crooked, all that is broken in our lives, and He makes it all work for our good. If God be for us, the Apostle Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 8, nothing can be against us. Yea, so great is the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ for us as people that all things work together for our good. Now I know that you don't experience perfect healing now in this life. I say perfect healing now in this life. Even with regard to your own conscience, the gospel comes to you and says, you're forgiven your sins for the sake of the death of Jesus Christ. And, and that is a great healing balm to you. But you still have to struggle from time to time with doubts. But when you get to heaven, you have perfect peace in your conscience. In your life, you still struggle with much sin. Your sanctification isn't perfect. But it is progressing. It is growing by the power of Christ working in you to cleanse you from sin, and it's going to be perfect in heaven. And in your relationships, in your life here, in your home, in the workplace, in your marriage, in the congregation, you don't have perfect peace and healing. Hopefully you do see some evidence of the power of Christ in those relationships now, but that will be perfect in heaven. This is why... Jesus suffered on the cross. Not only to pay for your sins, He did that, but to give you peace with God and to give you life and victory over sin and to give you more and more of that life until He makes you perfect in heaven. Do you know the peace of God? And of Jesus Christ in your conscience and in your life. Do you experience that healing power of the sacrifice and the cross of Jesus Christ in your life? If not, then the Word of God here in Isaiah 53 calls you to confess your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross as the only payment for sin. And if you do believe, then this Word of God calls you to continue. Remember. And continue to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because you are saved. And you are healed. Not because of any good in you, but because He was wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. Believe in Him. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the gospel.
revealed in an amazingly clear way in Isaiah 53 for the calling to confess our sins. And we pray, Lord, that Thou wilt give us grace not to deny, minimize, or to say we have no sin, that we may know our sins, that we may know our need for salvation through the substitutionary suffering of our Savior Jesus Christ in our place. And we pray, Father, that as those who know and believe in salvation through Jesus Christ, we may experience the power of peace, Christ's peace that passes all understanding working in our hearts and in our lives. And may we experience the healing power of Thy grace as we live in a dreadfully broken and very dreadfully sinful world. May we be a people who experience the beginning work of Thy grace and look forward with hope to perfect healing in the life to come. For Jesus' sake, 